millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And this week, I want to talk um, a little bit about a very, uh, very, very broad topic. Um, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to give much of it justice because it's it's kind of uh, huge and and uh, diffuse. But I want to talk about changing attitudes in post-war Britain towards sexuality. Um, I, I particularly want to focus on Britain. I mean, you you could look at uh, a, a number of different countries and find. Uh, throughout the 20th century, uh, varying discourses on uh, on sexuality. But uh, Britain seems to be synonymous, perhaps unfairly so, um, throughout the 20th century for a repressed attitude towards sexuality. And there uh, appears to be a number of moments. The 60s is um, always focused on as the kind of the the key period of change but i i wonder whether it's as fundamental as we've believed but there have to be a number of moments in the post-war era where attitudes towards sexuality towards the body towards um supposedly um suppressed or uh, degenerate sexualities uh changes um, and it, I, I think the big story here is about changing levels of education and affluence throughout the post-war era. One of the reasons why um, the 60s is seen as a, a, a fundamental era in changing attitudes and beliefs about sexuality is, of course, because of the contraceptive pill, which broke the link between um, uh, heterosexual female sexual behaviour and uh, pregnancy and motherhood, um, women were uh, um, uh, unburdened with large numbers of unwanted pregnancies. And, of course, the, uh, may- the decriminalisation of male homosexuality in 1967. Um, but these changes don't necessarily mean that the 1960s was uniformly an era of progressive attitudes towards sexuality certainly at the end of the decade there's a real backlash um, against this notion of permissiveness the numbers of people actually engaging in what was described as permissive behavior in the 1960s is comparatively few most people 
throughout the 1960s live extremely conventional lifestyles. They um, uh, don't engage uh, in sex before marriage. There's a huge percentage of young people that didn't believe in it, thought that one would, uh, the point was to get married, to have a, a nuclear family, um, to have children, and to um, the idea of promiscuity um, was quite an anathema um, to large sections of the population. So a lot of the myth of the 60s is, is precisely that, this kind of swinging Carnaby Street notion. It was experienced by a handful of people. It was experienced by, um, as in all periods of, um, where there is a kind of an intense bohemian moment, such as in Weimar Germany in the 1920s, or um, New York, say, in the 1970s, is a, a very, very small number of people that really have any experience of this. The majority of people experience it second-hand through the pages of the tabloid press of, of that era. If you think about, uh, for example, the reportage on, um, say, for example, the Rolling Stones and the Redlands scandal where um, the police... Um, raided Keith Richards' home at Redlands and found a tiny quantity of drugs and Marion Faithful um, in some state of undress. Um, this was a cause celebre, you know, this was a, a, a sensation, but it, um, reality was did not reflect the lives of ordinary people in Great Britain in the 1960s, which is probably why it was of interest to so many. One of the things that had occupied the thoughts of um, social planners um, throughout the 20th century for, for various reasons was the question of population, of birth rates. Um, you find um, this kind of demographic obsession uh, in the aftermath of World War I uh, in Germany, in France and in Great Britain. In Great Britain it's kind of riven with class anxieties. You have the likes of T.S. Eliot, Murray Stopes, uh, the Huxley brothers, um, various Bloomsbury types, uh, really fearing that the lower orders are going to outbreed the middle classes. You know, the uh, the middle classes um, may have lost the greatest and brightest number in the trenches of the First World War, and they considered that they they had you know uh, fewer people to lose. And um, one of the one of the reasons for um, Marie Stopes, the uh, contraception um, uh, evangelist. Uh, and a sexual health um, campaigner. One of the reasons why she wanted um, uh, contraception for working class women is because they so they wouldn't have so many children. And um, she had some number of fairly unpleasant things to say uh, about the working classes in general, sort of a, a kind of a, of the breeding like flies sort of um, level level of um, of language. Birth rates were going down though. Um, in by the 1930s, they reached the kind of a an all time low, and this has probably got to do as it normally does um, with uh, levels of com comparative levels of affluence. Now the 1930s, yes, are a, a poverty stricken decade, but in comparative terms, most of the population is getting gradually a little bit better off over time. There are serious pockets like South Wales. Um, the northeast and Northern Ireland and the Mersey Merseyside of deep deprivation, uh, where those kind of statistics don't apply. But for much of the country, things are by the mid nineteen thirties are, are gradually improving, and there is a an, an 
very strong correlation, if not actual causation now, uh, statistics show between rising living standards and a declining birth rate. Um, the wartime years see a, an increase in births, um, but uh, the 1950s again is, it, the, is uh, marked by this anxiety over birth rates, and you have a period whereby um, the, 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 there's this notion that the, the state invariably has the answers and uh, that state action can stimulate people to have more children. There is this huge um, uncertainty about Britain's world role after the war and a sense that Britain is going to need lots and lots of new um, skilled, semi-skilled and also unskilled workers uh, for the new, these new industries of the future that are, are predicted. And throughout it all are these eugenic ideas. That is the idea that the kind of the, the quality of the, uh, the the bloodstock, the quality of the British race is um, in decline, and the um, it, it is kind of seen as incumbent on um, responsible members of society, the um, you know the respectable working classes, the middle classes, um, to have as many children as they can do because. Uh, the social ballast, the, um, the 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 undeserving poor, are uh, outbreeding them. It would seem that by the nineteen forties, that the work of Marie Stopes and other people of her generation had had some effect. That uh, women were well aware of birth control, were um, well aware that they could plan families, and that families are, th- are things that that are planned. Um, this is um, a notion that had been really quite alien um, to their parents or grandparents' generations, that you you time the uh, arrival of, of children and decide how many you want. Um, the Mass Observation, the um, social research organisation um, that had its heyday in the 1940s, um, found that it were, women were associating smaller families with quality of life issues, um, which um, is for us uh, in here in the twenty first century kind of a uh, a fairly instinctual thought, but these were quite new concepts in the nineteen thirties. Public health had been um, pioneered in the nineteen thirties, and this had um, a lot to do with um, uh, sexual health and uh, maternity and reproduction and that sort of thing. In um, London, for example, the Pioneer Health Centre in Peckham that was established in 1935 was um, part of an experiment not only in public and preventative health but sexual health as well, um, where ordinary people, uh, local people, paid a subscription of um, a shilling a week to join the clinic and had an annual health checkup and they accessed leisure facilities, ate well and were given sexual health advice and advice on contraception. Um, Finsbury Health Centre opened in 1938 um, and uh, was focused on particularly poor communities. So um, it um, focused on um, things like um, TB and eradicating lice in children. But there was also a lecture theatre there. And this was visited by um, sexual health campaigners 
um, and um, people who were experts in reproduction, family planning, and that kind of thing. And these ideas take root, um, new ideas take root gradually over time with uh, these sorts of methods. And if reproductive rights were changing in the post-war era, so was marriage and, of course, divorce. Um, the, um, uh, the 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 uh, golden age of um, the pioneering of divorce laws um, was firstly the 1850s and then secondly um, the 1930s. Um, Marie Stopes, who I mentioned before, her book um, Married Love, put forward the idea that sexual satisfaction um, was actually a, now an integral part of marriage for women and should be, um, uh, in, in, you know, women should be entitled to expect um, sexual satisfaction with in marriage. And this, this again, was um, not a mainstream idea in the uh, the twenties and thirties. After the war, and I think perhaps because of um, the um, the war. Um, advice, leaflets, pamphlets, booklets become ex- increasingly more explicit um, during during the war. One of the the great enemies of the British Army was venereal disease. Um, young and often unworldly and quite naive uh, men would travel to different parts of the world and uh, gain themselves uh, an infection of gonorrhea or syphilis, um, having no idea about the things to do to protect themselves from it. And so they had to be told in, in pretty um, pretty explicit terms um, what to do about this. And this culture is easily transferred to civilian life. Um, the Marriage Guidance Council, for example, um, uh, p- published a booklet, uh, Sex in Marriage, in 1947, which sold over half a million copies um, over the next 20 years, which gives you a clue about its, its popularity. Um, and the the wide how widespread um, its um, advice was, it still existed by the nineteen sixties in in a huge kind of vacuum of um, of, of knowledge about um, sexuality, sex and sexuality. The Marriage Guidance Council itself was established in nineteen thirty eight, and it reflected a uh, a new idea that marriages were partnerships that both men and women had to contribute to them that uh, men couldn't simply expect their wives to be doormats for them and that marriages weren't easy marriages were difficult and complicated things that had to be had to be worked at and there had to be um, perseverance and 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 effort and all that sort of thing um i wonder if this is perhaps influenced by um development How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In um, psychology and psychoanalysis, um, obviously the 1930s are a real uh, golden age for developments in things like family therapy child uh, psychology um, and, and that kind of, of thing. Um, so uh, perhaps there is some kind of relationship there. One thing is worth saying is that there was a widespread belief, and I think there probably is a lot of truth in this, that the, the war had caused chaos in family life, that uh, men had been sent overseas and been unfaithful while serving in the armies, their wives had been unfaithful while the men had been away, um, that men had, you know, men had come back to find either their, their family's not there because of the bombing or killed because of the bombing, or they, they had been killed at um, uh, whilst um, away fighting and um, new partners are found. So there was um, a, a widespread uh, anxiety, particularly at an elite level, a governmental level, that these sort of disruptions to family life were going to have profound consequences for British society after the war. And obviously no, nobody quite knew how society would, um, w- would develop or, or change. Um, and the, um, there is evidence that divorce rates cons- considerably grew in the 1940s, uh, the second half of the 1940s after the end of the war, Perhaps this has got less to do with infidelity than it's got to do with the trauma of war, people realising that life is short and maybe they don't they never love their partner in the first place or they don't know who this person is that they are married to and it's got a lot to do with the greater availability of, of divorce. And it's only in 1969 that you actually get the, the kind of the uh, big bang in divorce law where uh, divorce can happen by mutual consent um, and that uh, divorces don't have to be uh, contested it can just be a, an an agreement um marriage doesn't kind of wither off and die though um you know the marriage is only really in the 80s and 90s that uh, marriage comes under um sustained pressure shall we say and the divorce rates um go up you know as they are now to nearly 50 percent 
marriage is really quite robust in the uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, there's a really hugely interesting chapter in Juliet Gardner's um, The 30s and Intimate History um, on working class um, gay life. Um, and in it she says that in communities such as the East End of London or um, in um, you know mining communities in the north of England, those communities where everybody knew everybody's business, there was often a, um, a very interesting um, attitude towards male homosexuality. Most gay men in these communities seem to have been either in heterosexual relationships, um, which are a kind of a, you know, a front for uh, gay lifestyles, or they were bisexual, or they had, um, um, they had gay experiences um, in, in the kind of the context of their, their inverted commas, normal lives. And much of this was quite well known. Um, it's difficult for people in these tight-knit communities not to know one another's business. And there was a, a, a kind of a widespread tolerance to these sorts of these these sorts of things that, you know, a, a rather um, a, a rather kind of frank attitude that this is what this is what happens. This is what you know such and such a person does, and you know it it obviously is not for discussion. We don't talk about these kinds of things, but everybody knows there are essentially open secrets um it's i forget the chapter but it's about in the the, the last um sort of 150 pages of the book it's well worth a read it's fascinating stuff but um the act of male homosexuality had been criminalized in the criminal law amendments act 1885 but uh, in the uh, the 1950s we see um a huge amount of anxiety and moral panic um, about um, uh, uh, homosexuality and other kinds of um, repressed or sort of prohibited sexualities, things such as uh, prostitution or um, in- infidelity or-, or that kind of thing. Um, there are all sorts of anxieties that are associated with the, the Cambridge spies, uh, the fact that um, Guy Burgess and Donald McLean in the Cambridge spying were, were both gay, um, and um, later on, people like John Vassell, um, the um, naval attaché in Moscow, who was caught in a, a classic KGB honey trap uh, with a, a, a young Russian man, and therefore blackmailed for state secrets. There was this idea that you know somebody who is gay is therefore in some ways uh, blackmailable or vulnerable or a security risk. Um, and, and 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 deeper than that, there was this kind of homophobic insinuation that if you're if you're gay, well, you're not a real man, and therefore you're not really kind of sort of an integral part of the community, and therefore you're you're bound to do something like give state secrets to the Russians, you know, um, these the these sorts of kind of fantasies and myths, really. And interesting, quite a lot of pressure came from the United States. The United States was sharing secrets with Great Britain and couldn't be seen to um, give any more um, uh, information to British intelligence until they did something about their terrible homosexual problem. Um, and this spilled out into uh, into the law. And um, the um, Home Secretary of, of the day, um, Sir David Maxwell Fife, 
uh, launched a kind of like a, a, a war against um, homosexuality uh, in the capital. And um, rigorous uh, sentences um, against um, men for uh, caught in uh, acts of gross indecency with one another uh, were in- enforced. Um, I mean, the uh, uh, the classic example is the, the fate of uh, Alan Turing, the uh, uh, in- in- Enigma uh, code breaker, um, whose actions arguably saved the country during the Second World War. Attitudes against homosexuality from the general public seem to have changed during the 1950s as a, a widespread sort of homophobic prejudice. But there is also a widespread sense that um, the state is not entitled to police the bedroom. And there is a view that if the state can police the sexual behaviour of gay men, then it can also uh, police anybody else and that um, before the 1950s there was uh, a widespread kind of social agreement that this, this the state can and should perhaps do these things to ensure morality and decency but um, in an era of growing affluence and growing social change notions of what is moral and decent are, uh, are also uh, becoming highly subjective and the certainly the idea that the state is there to uh, enforce some kind of public decency um, or private decency is a very contentious view. Most of the supposedly pioneering and liberal um, reports and reforms uh, at the time, uh, such as the 1952 Church of England report, The Problem of Homosexuality, still view homosexuality as uh, inherently a, a bad thing. Um, and the, the, there is this um, notion that there is a, there is a kind of uh, accepted and proper sexualities and then deviant bad ones. It was the establishment of the Wolfenden Committee um, in 1957 um, which uh, brought about the possibility of reform. Um, So Robert Boothby, who ironically was having a very long-term affair with Harold Macmillan's wife, um, said that uh, the duty of the state was to protect youth from corruption and from public indecency and nuisance. But what consenting adults do in privacy may be a moral issue between them and their maker, but it is not a legal issue between them and the state. Um, and the uh, in 19, the Sexual Offences Act, nineteen sixty seven, um, was yeah it was a reform. It decriminalised homosexuality, uh, but the, the reforms are still quite limited because it decriminalised homosexuality uh, between consenting adults. In private, but uh, in a private space, but the definition of what constitutes private still remained hugely ambiguous, um, and um, the uh, age of consent was fixed at twenty-one, um, whereas heterosexual consent is well, that one was at that time still so sixteen. There's a lot of kind of fairly unpleasant language at the time as well, which talks about protecting the youth and protecting the corruption of the youth. Uh, and this kind of thing, and there is this sort of insinuation that um, child sexual abuse and homosexuality might sort of be the same thing, which, of course, you know, we know that they're not. Um, and the um, 67 Act actually um, makes the law against uh, the sexual abuse of children uh, really quite quite uh, a, a more significant piece of legislation. 
It also, uh, on the flip side, made um, anybody who was caught, uh, uh, was found guilty of gross indecency with another man, um, um, aged between 16 and 21, um, a, uh, a far more likely to serve a longer jail sentence. Prison sentences were increased from two to five years. Mm. So I would say that the, the Safety 7 Act is um, a pretty feeble evidence, in my view, that um, things have become you know, that much more liberal in terms of gay rights in the 1960s. It was um, a fairly minor contribution. And also, the 60s, from probably you know, 67, 68 onwards, produce um, a, a new wave of moralism. Uh, Mary Whitehouse, who I think I've mentioned before, um, campaigned for uh, to clean up television from 1963 onwards. She was a a, um, a, a Christian evangelist who believed that um, Britain had been modernity and her rather eccentric view of what she thought socialism was um, and uh, consumerism. Um, had warped Britain, uh, Britain's youth and um, television had been chief at the heart of this, pumping these, uh, not just, you know, these kind of perverse and rather sexualised images. Um, and also, I, you know, had, it had simply given people lots of ideas that it was OK to sort of disrespect the royal family and that kind of thing. She was, had a very broad, conservative view with a, with a small C. Um, Mary Whitehouse launched the um, National Viewers and Listeners Association, but she also um, um, engaged in um, a, a kind of a religious campaign to change Britain's morality, which she becomes a laughing stock and it's... Um, um, uh, it is doomed to failure. Uh, in 1971, her uh, Lord Longford and Cliff Richard, of all people, um, performed a a festival of light um, where they lit kind of beacons on hilltops across the land um, and encouraged um, people to join in and, and campaign against the growing the growing decline in moral standards uh, across the country. Um, the um, decision by Lord Longford um, to um, investigate the issue of pornography um, and in which he argued for a tighter regulation of, of, of pornography um, and a kind of a um, protection of, of children from um, uh, pornographic images. Um, was, again, part of this new climate of new moralism at the end of the 1960s, an idea that permissiveness, in inverted commas, had gone too far. Anyway, I've gone too far because I've talked on for way too long, uh, and uh, there's an awful lot more to say. You can listen to um, another podcast I've done on this topic about the 1980s and um, HIV um, and Margaret Thatcher um, and uh, sexual politics then. Um, but until then, um, I hope you found this podcast interesting and useful, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.